Hello and welcome back to the Indian Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, you are looking for informative, entertaining, inspired insight, which you can apply to your life in these times. You found the right place. Last episode, we talked about the wisdom of world affirmation. The idea that the world is not an obstruction to your spiritual growth, your evolution, your learning, your wisdom gleaning. But the world, once sensibly and attentively engaged, is actually an instrument to your awakening. However, (laughs) for the vast majority of folks who walk the earth, worldly affairs, of course, present a great number of obstacles. So how do you be in the world, but not fully of the world? Passing through, as it were. This actually, to my mind, is the central thrust of the Bhagavad Gita, the cream of the crop, the essence of Hindu philosophy, which actually owes its heritage from Vedic world affirmation and Upanishadic world denial. And so, by the time of the crafting of the epics, the great epic tales, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, and of course, as many of you know, the Bhagavad Gita is but a tiny sliver of the great gargantuan epic Mahabharata, by the time of the crafting of the epics, the Indic world has to domesticate and integrate the wisdom of the ascetics into life in the world in a meaningful manner. And so there's a brilliant synthesis that Krishna advances in the Bhagavad Gita of what this might look like. Now, some may take it as sophistry. (laughs) Some may take it as profound wisdom. You be the judge. But Krishna calls Arjuna, his, his warrior interlocutor in the Bhagavad Gita, to embrace his duty. And of course, this is a moment where his, his duty is very bloody, gory, distasteful perhaps. He's called to engage in the wretched enterprise of war. But he's called to engage his duty in the spirit of detachment. So in a sense, be in the world with your hands and your feet, but renounce with your head and your heart. The crucial move that the Bhagavad Gita makes is that it doesn't matter what activities you undertake, what actions in which you're ensconced, and indeed you ought to be ensconced in action, or how else can you perform your duty? The Gita is clear that one needs to perform one's duty, but not be attached Now, this may be a walking contradiction to some. To others, this might be a brilliant, brilliant solution. But the idea of being a soldier, so to speak, for all of us, um, with with our hands and our feet, with our activities, but somehow to cultivate the spirit of detachment with our heads and our hearts, our spirits, if you will, this idea is quite compelling. It's a fascinating synthesis of world affirmation and ascetic world denial, which ultimately supports our work in the world and equally supports 
our spiritual evolution. Now, I've heard that many of you enjoy a tale or two when told live, <laughs> perhaps by yours truly. A great many comments have come into my inbox <laughs> since the podcast has commenced a short two episodes ago about the allure of storytelling and its power. And there will certainly be an episode or two in the not-too-distant future decoding, unpacking the power of story, the imperative of story for the encoding and the disseminating and the propagating of ideas, of ideals, of experiences. But today, like the first two episodes, rather than talk about story, <laughs> you'll have yet another chance to experience a story world with little nuggets of wisdom <laughs> sprinkled therein. So once upon a time, a long, long time ago, in a village in the Himalayan peaks, the northern Himalayas, the northern part of South Asia, of Bharata, of, of India, it was in this village, a sage, a holy man, a sadhu. And he was very much detached, or so he'd like to think, <laughs> from world affairs. He never married. He never had children. And he stayed in his hut most of the day, performing penance, performing puja even at times. He had at his shrine, at his altar, a murti, an embodiment of the deity Shiva, lord of yogis, Yogeshwara, lord of beasts, Pashupati. So much to be said about the glorious Shiva. But for today, just understand that Shiva was his Ishtadevata, his chosen form of the divine upon which to ideate for her spiritual evolution. Actually, Shiva was the presiding deity of the entire village. It was the Grama Devata. Okay? So he was performing puja, penance, ritual worship to Shiva day in and day out, uttering sacred utterances, mantra, making offerings at his altar with devotion, offerings of flame, of incense, of fruits, of flowers, of water, of various foods to his altar, to his shrine, meditating on the energy of Shiva, day in and day out. Fairly steadfast was his devotion to Shiva. Now, every now and then, this holy man would be slightly distracted by the goings and comings of gentlemen who went by his hut. Who were these men? Where were they going? They were going to visit a woman in his neighboring hut. And much to this holy man's disdain and scorn, the woman next door was a prostitute, a sex worker. And her clients, her johns, would come in day and night and he couldn't help but be distracted by their goings and their comings. And he couldn't help but be distracted by imaginings of lewd, distasteful dalliances, affairs taking place. 
within the walls of this sex worker. Now, the man, to his mind, did not think of her as a sex worker, nor did he think of her as a prostitute. To his mind, he would think of her as the whore, the village whore. And so there's a fair bit of judgment and scorn because he knew too well that the scriptures call one to brahmacharya, to chastity, as much as possible. And so what could possibly be the fate and the karmic increment of engaging in such activity day in and day out? So the man's pseudo-steadfast devotion to Shiva was nevertheless interrupted quite often by the goings and comings of the Johns of the whore next door. Now one day, perhaps by chance, perhaps by divine intervention, an avalanche descended upon the village and wiped out all of the souls therein. And having left their bodies, all of the souls went up we can think to some some analog to the pearly gates, <laughs> the Indic pearly gates in the Himalayas. There's a sorting center, of course, because as we will know in the Indic context, rare indeed are they who can live for the rest of eternity in heaven or liberation in some state of freedom and be the vast majority of souls are recycled, if you will. They're circulated back into Prakriti, back into material creation, according to their karmas and according to their karmic deaths and their impulses and their desires and the proclivities. And, and hence, we all return to this earth, according to Hindu philosophy, again and again and again. And so all of the souls from this wiped out village ascend to the abode of Shiva to meet the maker, as it were. And they couldn't quite access Shiva directly. You know, St. Peter, he's a, he's a quite busy man. He's, he's even working in the Indic skies in these times, apparently. He's at these, these pearly Himalayan caves. And the Sadhu, the holy man, enters the gates and he smiles. And St. Peter smiles back at him. And he's prepared after a life of steadfast, steadfast devotion to be accepted into life everlasting in the glorious presence of the great God, Shiva. And in anticipation, his eyes lock with St. Peter and smiles. But St. Peter doesn't quite beckon, but just politely smiles. And out of the corner of his eye, he notices the woman next door to his mind, the village war. And St. Peter's gaze switches from him to the woman and beams her a glorious smile and says to her, welcome, milady, welcome to life everlasting. Welcome to the abode of Shiva. And she's admitted entrance beyond the gates. And the man looks at St. Peter and St. Peter smiles and says, well, good sir, you have done great works in this life indeed but your training is not complete. You have some more to learn. The saint, the sage, the sadhu, 
the so-called holy man was aghast, absolutely aghast, not so much surprised perhaps that he had more to learn for. He well understood that the vastness of, of, of the journey of, of birth, death, rebirth, and the, 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 the multitudinous lives to be lived and the various lessons to be learned. He wasn't so much surprised that he had more to learn, but he was utterly confounded and flabbergasted that the whore next door gained entrance to life everlasting. How could this possibly be? Indeed, he couldn't contain his discontent, his disgruntled nature, his confusion, his confoundment. And he said to St. Peter, Wait, I have more work to do. Surely I accept this, but she gets to pass? Are you kidding me? How is this possible? And the saint smiled and said to the holy man, Well, are you sure you wish to know? why it is that she gained entrance and you have not. And the man said, of course I do. And I wish to understand. Obviously, Brahmachari is important. I've practiced it most of my life wherever I could. Clearly, I've, I've experienced the power of it. It's more than a concept. You know, if this is the case, if the Shastras, if the scriptures are correct, and this is the case, then how on earth could this woman enter the gates of heaven? And the sage said, My dear sir, have you not read the Bhagavad Gita? Do you not understand the wisdom contained within? And the man said, Yes, I know it front to back, back to front. All right, said said St. Peter, who apparently was versed in all scriptures. Call to your mind, chapter 2, verse 48. Do you remember what this shloka, what this verse says? And the man said, of course I do. It's a very important shloka. It defines yoga. It defines the state of yoga, of, 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 of union, if you will, with the Supreme. It says, Yogastha Kuru Karmani Sangam Tyakpadanjaya Siddha Siddhyo Samobhudva Samatvam Yoga Uchate. And what does that mean? That means that you should do your duties, perform your duties situated in the state of yoga, having abandoned attachment, view success and failure the same. Yoga is called equanimity. And so you see, you have indeed performed your duties, my good sir, but not without attachment, not without emotionality, above and beyond your great desire and attachment to enter the gates of heaven, which perhaps is a noble attachment. In your search, for spirituality, you inadvertently found supremacy, self-righteousness. Your ego was bolstered by a sense of superiority above and beyond all the others in the village, and in particular, 
the woman next door, who was none other than an important test for you. For you see, this woman has three children. And her deadbeat husband <laughs> left her, abandoned her many years ago. There will come a time, some centuries from now, when women may work. But in these dark ages of the earth plane, they cannot. And so, when they do not have the support of a male in the society that you've set up, it is rather inequitable, but in time that will be corrected. They have little recourse. And so, she took up the only work she could in order to feed her children. And while she was servicing her Johns with her body, her soul and mind were on Shiva, were on the divine. Indeed, she thought nothing other than her children, their welfare, their future. She was able to perform her duties, however seemingly disdainful. Do you think it is not disdainful and disturbing to slaughter your kith and kin in a battle for power, for the throne? This is what Krishna was calling Arjuna to do. But equipoised in the spirit of detachment, Similarly, this woman engaged this seemingly disdainful duty, but she did so in the spirit of detachment. And ironically, while you were worshipping the Lord, you thought more of her employment <laughs> than she herself did as she was performing it. The man was humbled, and he was filled with authentic compassion for the woman next door. And he was filled with remorse, contrition, for having judged her so. And he was filled with insight for understanding that even in the name of spirituality, of religion, of piety, of virtue, of dharma, even in the name of righteousness, to be self-righteous is not righteous at all. He understood. And he asked quite humbly and sincerely, what must I do to atone, to purify? How may I purify myself so I, may, so I might be worthy for life after lasting, life everlasting in the abode of Shiva? And the man said, St. Peter said, are you sure you wish to know this? <laughs> and the holy man said, I do indeed. Is there any way for me to exhaust all of my karma in one life on the earth so I may expedite my karmic journey, and more quickly reach the abode of Shiva. And St. Peter said, there is a way. It will be difficult. Are you sure you wish to know what it is? The man said, yes, indeed. 
I wish to know the most expedient path, however difficult, and I will pray for the strength to endure it, so I may most expediently return <laughs> to the pearly gates for once and for all. And the man said, Your karmic account is fairly clear. There are a couple minor vasanas, patterns you need to work out, but you've done quite well. But the major uh, sin, uh, Papa, the major uh, non-meritorious uh, in incurring that you have done has been from this life. And so, to atone, you need to descend in the body of a woman and you need to experience what it means to have no other recourse to survive and support your children, but to sell yourself in such a way. And you need to day in and day out bear the scorn of a self-righteous bastard <laughs> telling himself he's a holy man. Indeed, he is a holy man. And his self-righteousness can be a bit much. And bear this scorn with equanimity and poise. And if, and only if, you can accomplish this in the course of this life, it shall be your last. The sadhu bowed before the saint and said, I accept, I shall do my best. I pray for the strength, the absolute strength and integrity that it took to endure that. Now, this woman is my guru. <laughs> she is my exemplar. I've had it all wrong, and now I have it right. It is not about the outer show. It is about our inner consciousness. And so the man descended. And perhaps, perhaps we don't know. Perhaps it is a tale for another day. But perhaps, perhaps he encountered just such a circumstance. And perhaps he met his circumstance with grace. There's a very important idea that emerged in the last podcast, an idea that comes up time and time again in the course of teaching and counseling and meaningful conversations about life and circumstances. There is the mindset that things are happening to you. And yet the exact same circumstances can be met with the more fruitful mindset that things are happening for you. Things are happening with purpose. And there's a reason behind the karmic ripening in your field. And it can only make you wiser and stronger if you allow it to. If you meet your challenges, if you meet your difficulties, if you meet your obstacles with grace, with the spirit of grace, with the awareness of grace, with the understanding that all is a dispensation of grace. Up is good, down is good. This is all part and parcel of the play of this world. Pursue what you wish to pursue. Do what you are here to do. 
but understand that all of your tests and trials and tribulations are not for naught. They will earn you the greatest of degrees in the school of hard knocks, <laughs> of which the great goddess is the dean. Perhaps more another day about the great goddess in her role as representing the play of this world and our karmas within it. I hope this tale has been useful fodder for you to reflect on the importance of the inner, the mindset, the spirit with which you approach a circumstance, a person. And at very least, perhaps this tale is a cautionary tale against being fooled by appearances, being fooled by the outer. Perhaps, perhaps there's an important piece of wisdom here about understanding that everyone has a journey. We are often quick to judge. Perhaps it's even instinctual and even natural on some level. <laughs> do you wish to be natural or do you wish to be supernatural? This is the call of these wisdom teachings, to be above the push and pull of prakriti of material creation, while it might be a natural impulse to judge and to issue scorn in certain circumstances. Perhaps we can pause and try and understand the journey of the one whom we are judging, and perhaps try to have a thought experiment and understand what would we do in their situation? What would we do in their psychology? Perhaps the expression, there go I, but for the grace of God, is apt. God being broadly defined, of course, as per your ilk. I think we'll close today, <laughs> having told the story of the holy man and the whore. A purposely provocative title, uh, partially going to a love of alliteration, <laughs> but also to show us at the end of the day which of the two, the holy man or the whore, which of the two were ensconced in sin and which was the exemplar to be followed. I hope you've enjoyed these teachings and this tale a fraction as much as I've enjoyed sharing it with you. Well, keep listening. Feel free to reach out if I can give service in any way. You can study with me at IndianWisdomSchool.com and to get a sense of my greater mission, RajBalkman.com. Until next time. Pay attention to your circumstances and try to understand what is happening for you. Namaste. Mm -hmm.